Uh, Luke 7, 18 to 34. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one that is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were were blind, he bestowed sight. And he said to them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messages, messengers had gone, Jesus said to speak to the crowds concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who dress in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you expect? <clears throat> what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you more than a prophet. This is he who, of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before the Lord. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all of the disciples heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized by the, with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the Lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you would not dance. We sang a dirge, and you would not, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came... For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Next is Jeremiah 23, verses 16 through 32. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord? 
to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. Then they would have turned them away from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness, when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all declares the Lord. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let me pray one more time briefly for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, I ask now that you will help us as your people to see you clearly, Lord. Uh, God, as we read in Jeremiah that your word is like a hammer that shatters a rock in pieces. Lord, I pray that your word would be that for us right now, God. That whatever hardness there is in us, Lord, uh, would be softened and perhaps even shattered by your word. Uh, And so, Lord, would you help me now to preach um, both with truth and with spirit, and would you grant ears of faith to all those who are here? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the text before us this morning is a little bit longer text than we've been dealing with in the past, but it is a coherent unit, so you can't really split it up and see the, the main point of the text. And I also think that the, the message of this text is uh, somewhat hard to grasp, at least that was my experience this week as I studied. Uh, it took me a little longer this week to really understand what the Lord had to say to us uh, in these verses. And so what I would like to do this morning is to go through these verses one time fairly quickly so you can kind of see the big picture, see an overview of the text, and then we'll go back and go through it a little more slowly to really discover some of the meat, some of the richness that is here in the passage. And uh, kids, since I know you're with us this morning, I want you to know that really what we're talking about this morning is seeing Jesus as God. So seeing Jesus not just as a good person, not just as another one that we can listen to, but seeing him as the Lord of all. And that's how we are to come to Jesus, as the Lord of all. So as we uncover this message in our passage this morning, again, we're starting in verse 18. And the first thing I want you to see is really two uh, major sections of our text this morning. The first major sh- section is verses 18 to 23. And so let me read this again for us. And again, we're just going to look at it briefly, but then we'll return to it. So starting in verse 18 of Luke chapter 7, it says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So in this section, we see Jesus responding to these messengers that John the Baptist, John, has sent to him. And in responding to the question that John has, Jesus performs all these miracles as a way to answer John's question. And so we see John's question in verse 19, where John's question is, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I think fundamentally what's being presented to us here is a question of faith. A question that comes from faith. John the Baptist believes that God is sending the Messiah. He believes that God is sending someone great to all that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Indeed, this is how John saw the mission of his life was to prepare the way for this Messiah, to make sure that everyone was ready for him when he came. And so John believed that the Messiah, if he wasn't already here, that he was coming very soon. And so he sends to Jesus and he asks this question, essentially saying, I know that God is sending someone. And my question is, are you that one? Are you the one who is to come? And so On the one hand, we have this example of John the Baptist, who is a man of faith, a man who believes and can see what God is doing in the world. And this is the the first major section of our text this morning. Now, for the second major section, I want us to jump down to verse 28. So, Jesus has responded to John's question. He said a few more words about John. And then in verse 28... 
Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then in parenthetical statement, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So again, in the first section, we're introduced to John, this man of faith. And yet in this latter section, we see a couple of examples of people who do not have faith. The first example of people who do not have faith is the crowd that is all around Jesus. And so, again, in verse 18, Jesus says that among those born of women, none is greater than John. And then in verse 29, it says, when all the people heard this, so this is the crowd that's gathered around, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So clearly this is a a good response on the part of the crowd. You know, they say, they declare God just, you know, they say, oh, God is good. But why do they do that? Well, they do it because they, they receive the baptism of John. And so when they hear Jesus say something really great about John, they think, oh, good, this means I'm in the right camp. This means I've done the right thing. In this way, they represent people who are not fully surrendered to God, who are not fully committed to God, yet they are people who are interested in God, who are leaning towards God. But what they're most interested in ultimately is what is good for themselves. And when they hear Jesus say these words about John and they know that they like John, they think, okay, this is good. I'm on Jesus' team. God's on my team. Everything is good. And so in this way, the crowd represents a character or a figure in between a man of faith like John and then the one we read about next, the Pharisees and the lawyers. In verse 30, it says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So there are Pharisees and lawyers that are also present in this crowd. And when they hear Jesus praising John in this way, you know, it kind of gets under their skin. They're a little angry about this because they didn't like John, right? He was the crazy man who went out in the wilderness He was calling the Pharisees broods of vipers. He was calling everyone to repent. And so the Pharisees didn't like John's attitude. And so they didn't like how Jesus said such good things about John. But then notice in verse 31, Jesus expands this critique beyond simply the Pharisees to the people of this generation. In verse 31, Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So he says, this generation. So the great mass of Israelites who were of similar age to Jesus or a little older or a little younger, they are like these children in the marketplace that are simply demanding that Jesus and John do what they want them to do. They're like children who are playing a flute and saying, dance for us, dance for us. Or singing a dirge and saying, weep now, weep now. And Jesus is saying, I did not come and John did not come simply to fulfill your wishes, simply to meet your demands. No, he came on a very separate mission. And so fundamentally, I think what this passage wants us to do is to put ourselves in this scene, to see ourselves particularly in the feet of the crowds who are friendly toward Jesus, who are interested in Jesus, and yet who have not fully committed to faith in him, who are between John on the one side asking, are you the one who is to come? And who are between, who are between the Pharisees on the other side saying, why don't you just do what we want you to do? And Luke, the, the gospel writer, is urging us to make up our minds. He is urging us to say, you ought either to be on the side of the Pharisees who are against Jesus, or you ought to be on the side of John, who believes that there is one who is to come and who wants to see that one to come who is in Jesus. And so that's the way I wanted to frame this text for us this morning, is seeing John on the one hand of this man of faith, and to see these these people, this generation on the other hand, who is fundamentally rejecting Jesus and rejecting God. And again, seeing Luke, the gospel writer, is asking us, which will you choose? Because the one place we cannot stay is in the place of the crowd. Simply being curious about Jesus, but not ever really ready to fully commit ourselves to him. And so let's dig into these verses a little more now to see exactly how we get there and how this passage provokes us to make that decision. So first I want to jump back to verse 19 of chapter 7 where John says, uh, where John called two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord and said, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, beloved, this is an enormous question, and one that we do not have time to fully dig into this morning. Indeed, there would be no sermon that would fully have time to dig into this question. Are you the one who is to come? This is a profound question because in saying this question, are you the one who is to come? John is reflecting upon all the pages of the Old Testament, all that has been written before that the Hebrew people knew as their scriptures, that the Hebrew people knew as the word of God. There is this Old Testament that was begun by Moses over 1,500 years before the time that they were alive, and who was finished by Ezra more than 500 years before the time that they were alive. It was inspired over these thousands of years by over 24, more, by over 24 authors who on every page reflects that there is one who is to come. 
That there is a Messiah that is coming. Indeed, from the very earliest passages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, we see a word of prophecy spoken to Adam and Eve by God himself, saying that there will be one to come who will crush the head of the serpent. And on every page of Scripture, almost after that, we see promise that there is one who is to come. There is one who is to come. This is the main purpose of our Old Testament, is to reveal to us the one who is to come. This is the one who is the greater David, who is the greater Solomon, the one who is the greater prophet than Moses, the one who is the fulfillment of every prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament. He is the one who will bless the nations as promised to Abraham. He was the one who will lead God's people into the promised land as was promised to Moses and to Joshua. He is the one who will rule forever as was promised to David. He is the one who suffers in our place, as was promised to Isaiah. He is the one who will change our hearts, as was promised to Ezekiel. He is the one who will deliver us from the wrath of God, who was promised to us by Jeremiah. Beloved, he is the good of all goods. He is the personification of greatness and glory. The whole earth has been waiting for the moment of his arrival. The whole world has been under a curse, waiting for someone who will lift the curse. Indeed, in Colossians 1, it tells us that all things were created through him and for him. That means that creation itself, not even simply the pages of scripture, speak to the coming one. In Romans 8, it tells us about how the whole creation is groaning, eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. This tells us about the second coming of the Messiah. The whole earth is still waiting for Jesus to return. This is the one who is to come. And so when John the Baptist sends messengers asking, are you the one who is to come? This is what he means, beloved. He doesn't simply mean, are are you the one who's going to take care of this one small problem that Israel has, like the Pharisees were thinking? Are you the one who's going to finally overthrow the Romans? As if the Romans were the greatest problem that the Israelites had or that mankind had? No, John the Baptist understands that the one who is to come is indeed the one who is going to liberate all of humanity from death itself. This is the profound question and this is the best question that we can ask if we want to know who Jesus is. We can ask Jesus himself, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one whose coming is the cataclysm of all of human history, the one who all nations long for and desire and are waiting for? The hope of all the earth. This is the one who was to come. Beloved, have you looked at Jesus in that way before? Is he the only hope of your heart? Is he the crux upon which your whole life turns? If Jesus is false, are you a crazy person? And if he is right, are you secure forever? Or is Jesus just one hope among many? Is he just one savior of the world, one part of the solution 
that mankind so desperately needs? Beloved, Jesus does not want to only have half of our hearts. He doesn't want to be one Savior among many. He wants to be the one who is to come. He wants to be the one that we all need. If he is only one among many, then, beloved, you have not come to know him at all. He will be the only one in your heart, or he will be utterly rejected by you. And so, you see, this is why Jesus calls John the greatest man ever born of woman. Again, in verse 38. As we see in verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. You see, John is so unique because he, above all others, clearly saw the glory of the coming Messiah. I mean, just look at how he lived. This is what's spoken in verses 24 to 26. When when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. You see, because John could see so clearly this age of the coming Messiah, because he could see so clearly the identity of Jesus Christ, he was willing to leave all that he had and to go out into the wilderness and to simply proclaim to people that they need to repent because this great king is coming. Because this great king that is the crux of all human history and you must indeed be ready for him. So often we think of John as simply someone who is somehow possessed or who is controlled by God. But no, John simply had eyes to see how great the Messiah was, and he wanted to give his life to preparing the way for this Messiah. In the church I worked at before I came here, the executive of that church really liked to use the phrase, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And I hadn't heard that before, but apparently it is a a famous phrase. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And that is what Jesus is saying about John the Baptist. That John the Baptist lived in the land of the blind. That the great Messiah, the greatest human being who ever lived, God come in the flesh, was coming and everyone was blind to it. Except John. He had the one eye. He could see that the Messiah was coming. And so even though everybody else thought he was crazy, Jesus could see clearly that he was the only one in his right mind. He was the only one who clearly saw who Jesus was, that the Messiah was coming. And that is why he is the greatest born of women. And yet, this is how great Jesus is, beloved. This is the the turning point of our passage this morning in verse 28. That as great as John was, as clearly as he could see who this coming Messiah was, look at the second half of verse 28. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. (laughs) 
Beloved, this is the age that we live in now. If we are the least in the kingdom of God, then we are greater than John because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus himself is so much greater than John that anyone who merely trusts in him gets a status superior to that of John the Baptist. As Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of, right now, beloved, right now as we sit in these seats, we are also seated on high in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That this is the status that Jesus has brought to us. We are not mere human beings anymore. We are not stuck in the misery and captivity of this world. We have been liberated by the great King Jesus and we are with him right now in the heavens. This is our fundamental identity. And so notice how sad the mistake is of these Pharisees and of this generation. So returning to verse 31 where Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. And then immediately after that, Jesus says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, in in this parallel that Jesus is putting forth, he is displaying for us the foolishness, the madness of this generation. Who are simply like children and want to play a flute and see the prophets, see the priests, see the religious figures dance and weep at their command. And this is all the more crazy because as Jesus points out, God did send very two different people to try to win people of all different kinds, and they did not listen to either. And so you have these children saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And yet, as Jesus says, when he came, he indeed came with joy and forgiveness. Indeed, he came with so much joy and mercy and forgiveness that people called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He indeed came dancing and with a smile on his face. But then, of course, there were these other children that called out, well, we sang a dirge and you did not weep. And yet Jesus did send John the Baptist ahead of him. And yet they said that he has a demon because he ate no bread and he drank no wine. He was crying out for repentance. And so we see that What these people rejected was not simply the style that was offered. They didn't simply dislike the style of John the Baptist and how he was so harsh and always called for repentance. They didn't simply dislike the style of Jesus who was always so merciful and forgiving, always ready and willing to go to a party and associate with tax collectors and sinners. No, what they rejected, beloved, was the substance. They rejected the fact that when the Messiah came, that meant that they were no longer their own gods. That meant that it was no longer up to them exactly how to live their lives, what to talk about, what to spend their money on, where to live, what to do. 
know if the Messiah had truly come? If he was now the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then that would mean that they would have to submit to him. That he would not dance according to their tune. He would not weep according to their dirge. And this is what most rattled them. And so, beloved, I ask you the question this morning, where do you stand? Are you one who has seen, like John, the glory of the coming Messiah and that you are eager to fall into his kingdom? That all that that means, even though it may be somewhat scary to you, seeing what Jesus requires of you, seeing how great Jesus is, seeing as you owe him all of your allegiance, that nevertheless you are willing to because you truly do see him as the hope of all mankind, as the turning point of all of history? Or will you be like these Pharisees, these lawyers? Will you be like this generation of Jesus who thinks that their own tune is the best tune there is. And you simply want religious leaders. You want church leaders who simply make you comfortable, who do what you think is right. You want others in the culture to simply affirm you as you are and tickle your ears. Beloved, God sent to us not only Jesus, but he also sent to us John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist made very clear that in preparing the way for Jesus, there is only one way to receive him. And that is to repent of our sins and be baptized, to get newness of life. And beloved, this is exactly what Jesus offered when he came. This is why the passage says that the tax collectors themselves were rejoicing. This is why the passage says that Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Beloved, he is this kind of friend because he comes for anyone who is willing to humble themselves and turn to him. Even if you are the wickedest and vilest person you could ever imagine, Jesus has come for you to liberate you from the chains of sin, to liberate you from the guilt and the shame of sin, and to set you in the heavenly places in the very presence of God. And he does this not simply when you earn it, when you've been good enough, but he does it simply for those who trust in him, who look to him and who say, you are indeed the Messiah. Again, as Jesus says in verse 23 of our passage this morning, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Beloved, Jesus came in a meek way and in a lowly way. And he says, if you will simply not be offended by me, if you will simply acknowledge who I am, acknowledge that I am the Messiah, I am the Lord, that I am the turning point of all of human history, that you, if you will simply acknowledge me in that way, then you will be blessed. Then you will know the joy and the favor and the wealth of my kingdom. But if you insist on playing your own song and asking everyone else to dance around with it, then you will be lost. You will miss this great kingdom of the Messiah. And so, beloved, we this morning must choose. 
Will we be like John? Will we give our lives? Will we be willing even to go into the wilderness and dress in camel skins and these sort of things if we want to glorify God? Or will we be like so many of the blind in our generation who do not see the glory of God? Who live more for the glory of TV or more for the glory of money or more for the glory of earthly pleasures than they live for the glory of God. Beloved, the rewards that God has for us are so much greater than anything this world could offer. Again, as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, it is possible to joyfully accept the plundering of your property because you know that you yourself have a better possession and an abiding one. And beloved, this is what John saw would come in the day of Jesus. This is what we ourselves must see as well. Being willing to forsake all else and turn to him only. And in closing, let me just offer one application of this point. So often when we think about any decision in our lives, our first consideration is just kind of what makes sense or what fits in with the culture around us. And yet I think according to this passage and the way that Jesus speaks so glowingly of John and the way Jesus speaks of himself, what we're supposed to ask first and foremost is not simply what makes sense or what's rational. What we're supposed to ask first and foremost is what is it that Jesus would have us to do? Whenever you're considering some big purchase, instead of just asking, what would I like? What would make me comfortable? Ask, what would Jesus really love me to do? What would best reflect the fact that he is king? Before you make some other major life decision, instead of asking, what makes sense to me? Say, what would Jesus have me to do? Because, beloved, if Jesus is king, then that truly changes everything. If Jesus truly is the one who is to come, then that means that our hope has arrived and that everything coming forward to us is simply mercy and blessing and grace. Let us bank on him and him alone, beloved. Let us forsake all others and trust in him. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we do want to see how you are the one who is to come. We want to see the the greatness and the glory of your kingdom, God. We don't want to just have one foot in and one foot out. Hedging our bets, thinking that if we commit halfway to you and if we live halfway in the world, then we'll get to experience the best of both. God, for anyone here, Lord, including myself, that so often falls into that sort of blindness, would you remove that blindness now, God? Would you help us to follow you alone, to follow you solely? God, would you give us the spirit like John the Baptist had, who was willing to go out into the wilderness, who was willing to indeed lose his life as he followed Jesus the King? Lord, would you so fill us with satisfaction in your greatness and in your kingdom that everything else seems like a filthy rag in comparison. 
Lord, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask that you would now, by your spirit, apply it to our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.